Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is the CEO of Formex Watches, Mr. Rafael Granito. Rafael, welcome. Hey Ariel, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you. You're someone who has a lot to share with people because your brand, Formex, does a lot of things and in a lot of ways is a success story. So I've been trying to think about how we, in this first conversation, can get out some of the interesting things uh, that you do. Because we were speaking a little beforehand, of course, we know each other. But like, really, when it comes to like cool stuff that small watch brands do, Formex does a lot of them. And I'm just curious why, uh, in, in your opinion, are you able to do so many things that other brands would like to do just one of? I guess that comes down to um, my background in, in the watch industry. So I grew up in our family's company. My, my dad founded a business uh, called Dexel, um, which has been you know, developing, supplying, and manufacturing and supplying watch parts, mainly related to the outside of the watch. So cases, bracelets, and, and clasps. He really started with clasps and he was always, he's always been tinkering uh, to find new systems, uh, you know, micro adjustments very early on and when nobody was talking about them yet. So nowadays, nowadays it's all the rage, um, thankfully, which I think is a great thing. But so I came up in, in his company as a, a product developer. So I'm pretty early on. I think I started working there full time when I was 19. Um, and that really gave me a look into how development is done, how manufacturing is done, prototyping, all these steps. And uh, only later on, uh, I got in touch with uh, one of the founders at Formex uh, who kind of wanted to pass on the torch. And that's how I got involved with, with Formex. I took over in 2016 and uh, kind of applied uh, what I've learned at Dexel to uh, this little small watch brand that was kind of dormant at the time I stepped in. And this really gave me a perspective on, on how to develop a watch that is not purely design. And then we try to manufacture something around that design or, or, you know, creating a very nice looking dial, a nice looking case. And then, oh, oh yeah, there is a bracelet we should still put on that watch. So the bracelet was kind of something that was, uh, not an after afterthought and was something that we really included into the design and the function of the watch right from the beginning. So, um, yeah, I guess kind of the my background of, of my dad's company and also the engineering power without, without which we couldn't have done what we're doing today. Let's unpack some of that because there's a lot of interesting things in there. I'd like to talk about your, your father's company, but more specifically, your decision at 19 to start working there it is uh, quite common in my experience in Switzerland, especially when someone's parents have a company to not work at the family company right away, maybe go somewhere else, maybe eventually come back. Um, but just talk a little bit about your decision to happily, it seems, work for the family company. 
I'm glad to say that I have a really cool family and nobody actually expected me to do that. And they always wanted me to do whatever I, I was interested in. And I have a, a lot of different interests and could already early on was, was lucky enough to be able to travel um, and, and discover those interests and also work. Um, I studied business in, in Zurich and also worked in, in the research department uh, in, the, in the School of Management and Law in Winterthur. So I did some other kind of work. I worked as a as a kite surfing instructor. I was working at a at a dance school and and everything before I was 19. So I got a, a real broad coverage of of uh, different jobs that I already covered, and then that led me to the decision that you know I wanted to join the business because it was a a very nice business. I was very proud, still am very proud of my dad for what he's accomplished. And it was a pleasure to actually join the company. And I was always interested in watches, not really as a collector uh, or, or as somebody who enjoys watches necessarily only wearing them, but really you know, fell in love with the process of developing, designing and, and uh, manufacturing all of these things. So this is um this is how I got into it and why I I made the decision to to join the family business. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of ecosystem of suppliers and then specifically about clasps because this is an an interesting sort of micro niche. It's a world unto itself, but it's uh it's something which is a niche within a, within a niche. Being a supplier to watch companies is one thing, but what people don't realize is that suppliers specialize in the very specific parts, parts that tend to be hard to make, that brands themselves would have to undergo a lot of investment and skills to produce. It's a lot cheaper to have a specialist do, do that. And so Switzerland and some other places around the world, and Asia, of course, as well, has a variety of companies that do the things that you expect, you know, the dials, the hands, the cases, but then the things that even are more specific, things like movement parts, but then clasps. And clasps is, is one of those, I don't know, I mean, how would you describe it? Maybe your father or someone in your family had a joke about it because every watch needs it, but it, it's it's sort of one of the last things that maybe a product designer tends to think about. But yeah, tell <laughs> yeah. me some of the jokes about the clasp. There's got to be some, come on. <laughs> well, I don't know if I know jokes necessarily, but as you rightly mentioned, the, the the smarter uh, manufacturers or brands actually rely on specialists for for any given component. So you know maybe as a customer you you see it as a prestige if a brand makes as many parts of their products in house, but as a as an industry insider you would say that's kind of kind of suicide to to try to do that and is not necessarily the most most practical and in the end not the most uh, qualitative way of doing things because there are people like uh, or companies like Dexo for instance who, who have been specialized in clasps bracelets and and cases also in all kinds of different materials uh, we for instance did the first uh, full ceramic clasp where literally every component except for the pins are made of uh, out of ceramic and um, so it would be kind of naive to to think that a brand could do all of this or even wants to focus all of the energy we've put into these components uh, into their own production. And we've we've seen it over the years uh, that a couple of brands, you know, 
kind of said, oh, maybe it's it's a, it's a matter of price, and they tried to go off and, and do it on their own or, or used other suppliers to, to try to kind of recreate what we've developed. And they always tend to come back after, you know, maybe a year or two of having some misadventures uh, with that. Um, they always tend to come back and say, okay, you guys, you guys can do it. <laughs> well, this is the story of every supplier which has ever existed, is if you do your job good enough then your clients think that they can easily do it themselves and then they try to and then eventually they come back because they realize that was a bad, that was a bad idea but your your company is a supplier and even ourselves as a supplier for content and media and stuff like that it's uh it, it just sort of goes goes with the territory but again i want to muse on this a little bit more i remember years ago i was at basel world and i was at a booth of some brand and someone had brought or left or whatever a catalog. Maybe it was from your, your your family company or maybe it was from a competitor. But it had a whole bunch of different deployments and clasps, different styles. They look different, different locking mechanisms. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, my God, wow, there's all these other options out there. Why is no one using this? Because you know firsthand, I'm sure, that so many companies which buy the clasps end up buying the exact type, same design, or even from the same exact company, and there seems to be this larger variety of stuff out there available. Why aren't they taking more chances with deployments and stuff? Why are they so conservative in this part of the watch? I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Um, I think this has to do, I mean, when, when was that back in Basel World? Uh, what, what year was that? Do you <sighs> this remember? This has got to be at least... Uh, 10 years ago, something like that. Minimum. Okay, so one thing that wasn't happening 10 years ago was brands selling direct to consumer and brands really being in touch with their with their end consumers. That's a thing that came or popped up for most brands during COVID or in the last three years. And with that came more direct customer feedback. So if, if somebody, if a brand sells, has their distribution network and people are selling, um, you know, somewhere in Asia or in, 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 in the US or in Latin America, sells a watch, uh, the customer maybe comes back a year or half a year after buying that watch and says, Oh, by the way, that clasp is not very comfortable. Uh, whereas when Formex sells a watch, the watch arrives. Uh, the, the customer un unboxes it, uh, looks at it, tries it on. If something at the in the clasp or in the bracelet annoys him, we're going to hear about it within 24 hours, 48 hours. And I think this happened to a lot of brands, uh, which is why they took customer um, feedback uh, more into consideration and more quickly into consideration. So customer feedback became something that entered the the um, the development loop more closely and more directly. So this is something that we definitely didn't see 10 years ago, which is why maybe more brands thought, oh yeah, that, that clasp, we're okay with the price, it works, it doesn't open, and even if it's not the most comfortable one, um, we're going to continue with that. But nowadays, so customers lazy. tend to be customers tend to be so loud or have a, a you know a louder voice uh, through you know the Facebook groups, the forums, the or even you know on on a blog to watch. You read the comments. Uh, everybody has a <laughs> has a very strong opinion about a lot of things. So you know, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that the smart brand managers go down there and read it. I don't deny that you're right. I just think it's amusing that the decade ago before this feedback was in their face, 
they claim that they didn't see it. Because you're right, there wasn't formal feedback in the form of like written, this strap sucks or this is the, this, you know, I'm being pinched or my arm hairs are being torn all the time. Like you didn't have that, but you could wear it yourself as a, as a test and be like, you know what? It hurts my hand. I think it'll probably hurt someone else's hand too. It's like they couldn't do that leap in logic unless somebody paying money for it actually complained, they wouldn't change a thing. And that's, what does that say about the Swiss watch industry? I'm curious. <laughs> well, I'm not here to hate on it, obviously, but- It's not hate, uh, it's, I what think, does it mean? You know, it's interesting. I think it's, it's also a function of, of competition. You know, like if everybody keeps using that same clasp, uh, why would you change it? Or why do you have to change it? And and not all of the brands are like that because we have customers, uh, I mean, customers of Dexel, so um, watch brands using uh, our micro adjusts, something that you would find in the reef, uh, in our reef model, in the steel bracelet, that really nice push to slide and, and, and without pushing, tightening it, the bracelets, without having to take it off. We had uh, customer brands who or one customer brand who's, who have been using this since 2009. So that didn't make any waves. Uh, back then, but I'm sure the customers appreciated it. And yeah. they, they had it on their rubber strap mainly, not on the steel bracelet. And um, so I don't know what happened there or why they didn't recognize that this would be a cool feature for a, for a metal bracelet, especially for a metal bracelet that is less flexible than a rubber, rubber strap. So I don't know what happened, but that's, that's how it is. And well, it's, it's interesting a, to know. I mean, look, this is an industry that has transitioned from the market tells us what to make and we make it and that's what we do to the market's telling us nothing. Uh, we know we can make cool stuff, but we don't know what. We have to invent something. So it's easier said than done, I guess, because a lot of times the traditional mindset of let's just be a factory and make what we have been making, that's hard to pull them out of it. Um, is it so expensive, actually, to every couple of years be like, you know what, let's make the stuff we make even better? Or is it not that expensive and, and just people aren't thinking about it, it's not in the culture? I mean, it tends to become more and more expensive because nowadays when we develop a new class system, you know, you have to go through patenting, um, then you have to go through uh, actually making it reliable and that takes lab testing uh, which every brand nowadays uh, requires and does on their own side so we need to go through all the um, independent lab testing before we actually um, launch a series and before we launch a series nowadays we do a run of a hundred pieces of uh, homologation series so um, and before we even launch that we have to go through the lab testing which involves you know traction torsion testing opening and closing with at least 10,000 cycles and so you know people want to kind of cover their bases much more before they launch something nowadays to avoid uh, having a catastrophic returns on the market, which is uh, makes sense, you know, when you work with customers that um, that sell hundreds of thousands of watches a year, they need to make sure that what they're putting on these watches will not make them fall off. You said something interesting, and that was uh, that you have to uh, have these tested by. Uh, an independent lab. I understand that a lot of companies, through pride and of course wanting to stand, uh, you know, stand behind their product, will of course do this testing. But what actually compels you to to have to do this testing? I mean, it's just a question of being efficient because if we don't do the testing and the customer does the testing, 
Uh, and if it fails, we'll just have to go through a whole new iteration of prototypes, and we're going to lose months and months before we oh, can you're actually... Because you're choosing to do it. You're making a wise business decision. Yeah, and we can also go to the customer and say, look, it's it's done. We know you're going to do it again, but we already know uh, and sleep well at night because we know it's going to pass. Now, that's a wonderful thing about the brand, that you go ahead and you submit your new inventions uh, for this testing. Because we know that a lot of brands, especially more high-end ones, they use their their VIP customers as the guinea pigs. That happens, right? Yeah, it happens. But um, this usually happens after some testing has been done already. And now at Dexel, we've um, we've actually created an in-house lab. So we can recreate all the tests that the independent lab does. So we actually do in-house testing before we even send it there to uh, to do the homologation process. So this is also a way to save uh, time and money before, you know, having to go through all the independent testing again. If it no, fails. It, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I it's a good thing. It's a point of pride. You should say, you know, we pay to have our watches stress tested, uh, functionality tested, durability tested, um, so that you know you can be self assured. I mean, there's got to be a sexier way of saying it, but that's that's a good that's a good slogan there. It's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would so, happen also now with sorry for cutting off. What happened yeah, also with Formex is that we've usually. Um, I try to implement, uh, you know, my dad's new inventions or our own new inventions. We implement them. Obviously, we do the testing required, but then uh, we go to market first uh, with those innovations, like you know, our new quick release system or uh, things like new micro adjust systems. Um, we we go to market uh, with Formex, and we actually already have something, a finished product. You know, back in the day, uh, we would, uh, you know, go to the customers and. Um, and, and showed them prototypes, or we've made you know a clasp that already corresponds to their case design with their logo on it, and that looks kind of like a finished clasp. But now we can actually go there and show it on a finished watch, uh, coherent system integrated in a finished, very nice looking watch. Um, you know, tends to be more convincing as well. And and one of the things that is interesting about uh, Dexel is that. You know, um, most suppliers actually co-develop with their customers on request of the customer of the of the watch brand. And my dad has always been uh, the inventor and tinker that actually yes. comes up with an idea, uh, has an idea about which brand he's going to speak first uh, with his new idea, creating already prototypes that work uh, before they even know that system exists, and and uh, actually goes and 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 tries to sell the product like that. So this is something. Um, we've always had much uh, much more engineers or engineering power that a company of our size would typically have because uh, there's always this ongoing uh, development and tinkering for something that is not actually on the market or, or has no market requirement. So it's kind of like creating a need on the market by new new inventions. That's such a good point as well. And your father's company, your family company is is one of a few. There are others, but you're right. Most suppliers do not have this type of, we'll call it imagination, but there are the uh, the tinkerers out there. Um, and, and, and there are a few really great ones. And these people, um, you know, they pitch to brands. So sometimes you think of a brand having come up with their own idea. And, and that's not true. Uh, a, a smart and enterprising supplier will be like, hey, we came up with this awesome idea. I thought about you first. I think you should check it out. If you don't want it, somebody else is. 
but you know this is going to be really cool and of course not all the time but this is this is the the genesis of a lot of great products isn't it yeah it is and and you know back in the day i remember even before i worked at my dad's company i would uh, kind of go with with him to Basel World, and I remember that that's a, many years ago. Remember him having the latest development in his pocket <laughs> as a prototype, and and visiting brands to you know casually pull it out of his pocket and showing it to them. And and uh, I remember loving uh, watching his face and uh, and the customer's face when they actually saw something really innovative, and and uh, him being proud uh, about showing it. So that that was really. That was really cool to see back in the days. That's awesome. At some point, I want to go and see like the Museum of Clasps, <laughs> clasps because I think there's got to be some there that are uh, so interesting, uh, so cool. There's so many problems in the clasp system. I mean, again, I don't want to like nerd out about it, but so often an uncomfortable watch will come down to something related to the buckle and the Ardeon or pin buckle as they call it mm. is very difficult to improve upon. There are other things that are improvements theoretically or that don't wear out a, a strap as much, but there's this whole world um, that isn't really discussed here. People interact with the clasp far more than they interact with the crown or the watch head. It's probably uh, the it's most known. solicited component of your watch. So yeah, it yeah. should be an afterthought for sure. Yeah, but it's so often this thing, they're like, oh my God, we have to buy a strap and the clasp as well. And, you, and you've seen this as well. You've seen these watches where like, it doesn't even look... <laughs> like the watch uh, head and strap should be in the same price category, right? Like yeah. forget the fact that they don't match. It's like, it was this an accident pairing these things together? Like you, you, even today you still see this a lot. Doesn't it make you laugh? It doesn't make me laugh. I mean, I, I get the the pain, <laughs> pains and struggles, especially of we small brands. We have different sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. No, it, no. Obviously, it makes me laugh, but I don't want to laugh about it because I respect whoever ventures out and tries to develop and manufacture watches because it is quite hard to do. And um, so when I, especially, I see it on on smaller brands, and I have experience with a smaller brand uh, since Formex is not not a huge brand yet, and uh, I can see why somebody would you know buy a, a, a pin buckle off the shelf uh you know it's obviously cheaper and easier and maybe the manufacturer has something ready to go uh, that doesn't cost much but is proven on the market so yeah maybe it doesn't look like it matches uh, matches the watch case that much and i actually think uh, that is a very important point and, and customers like you uh, you know the nerds and the experts uh, will will definitely notice if you know like like all of our formex clasps if you look at it you'll find design elements of the of the of the case or even the dial on on the clasp so i think that you know goes together and and should be considered when developing something <laughs> do you want formex to be a big brand cuz you said we're still a small brand we're not a big brand yet i mean i know these are playful terms but i'm just out of curiosity does it make more sense for formex to be about the same size it is and be sort of an interesting playground for uh, elements of the supplying company? Or is there something to be said about growing Formex into a much larger company? I mean, honestly, I'm I'm a bit along for the ride for this. I don't have huge, uh, you know, numbers planned or anything. We're, we're a healthy company right now. Uh, at this size, we've been a healthy company for a couple of years. So, um, 
it's nice to see it growing because it's my baby and we're all working very hard uh, for it to to you know do well so it's nice to see it growing but i i don't have numbers in my head where i say yeah i'd like to be making 50,000 watches in in 5 years um so you know i'm excited to see where it goes and we're working hard for it we're definitely not working to reduce or the size or you know make less um, so it, it's nice to see it growing, and uh, but I don't have a, a set goal in my mind for for where it has to be at what time. And my the importance for me is for you know everyone or at least most people here to be happy and proud uh, about working with us, and um, you know the suppliers being happy with us, the the, the customers uh, you know sending us emails saying hey thank you for making such a great watch I'm I'm really excited about wearing it it turns out to be one of my favorite in my collection even though it's by far not the most expensive one so this kind of feedback keeps us keeps us going and pushing um, but the most important thing for me is that you know we're, we're having a healthy we're, we're cultivating a healthy environment in the company for everybody to to be happy to be doing what they're doing so let's go back to beginning your career 19 years old you said you said you had some other jobs how long before you said you know what I want to start a watch brand. And of course, you make the decision to, to purchase a brand as opposed to starting a brand new one. But talk a little bit about um, your professional transition to um, you know, being a product uh, designer to wanting to be uh, the manager of an entire brand. That actually never happened. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> I didn't set out to find a watch brand. The, the watch brand kind of found me um, because... So what happened is... Um, in in my dad's company, when I was working, I was I was doing product development with the with the design and engineering team, and uh, at some point, one of our friends, I mean business friends, um, kind of bought stock of a, a brand that has faltered, and uh, also bought the rights to to assemble these watches from from the old stock, not not so old stock, actually new stock that they found. So they needed somebody to. You're talking about Formex? No. Oh, it's not Formex. Yeah, some other brand. And um, so they needed uh, us to manufacture some of the parts to be able to complete the watches. And um, so that was my project. And this is when I first got into contact, not into contact, uh, when I first set out to actually creating whole watches, uh, including the assembly. So I put, uh, put together a team that was actually doing watch assembly because Dexo was only supplying components and and you know the the assembly of the watches, putting the dial on the movement, uh, hands and, and encasing everything that was always done at the the customers. Um, so that was the first contact we had for T two as we call it, so setting setting dials and hands and encasing. And this is kind of how I learned what goes into making a watch and. Then uh, one of the founders of, of Formex, of the Gretel brothers, one of them was already working with us, uh, with Dexo, um, on the side. And uh, the brand Formex had kind of gone to sleep because he was focusing on other things and getting older as well. So he reached out to us uh, if we didn't want to you know, make the brand live on or try to see what we can make uh, of it. And this is how we got into contact. So I'm... Kind of had a hard think 
um, was leaning more towards no in the beginning because I was really happy happy with what I was doing. Um, but then I kind of I kind of changed my mind because I, I thought it was a really nice challenge, and and that's how it started or restarted. <laughs> what were your initial thoughts of Formex? I mean, I I remember the brand in its old ownership, and I was a fan, and I thought it was cool. It was unbelievably niche. Um, yes, I can see the appeal in it, but I'm just curious. You know, you're a young, dynamic guy. You grew up in the watch industry. You you know how uncommon it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what were some of your thoughts about it? Was there, you know, and 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 also, is there ever a debate of I should just start my own brand? Because I always wonder is that is that always a possibility? Because to buy something and to develop it is probably the exact same amount of work than just starting from scratch. I would imagine. It is. It is. And, you know, since I didn't have the idea of founding a new brand, uh, that question didn't really pop up. And, um, yeah, nowadays uh, it would be a whole different consideration with, with what I know and what I've what I've lived through. And, um, yes, yeah, so back then it just didn't, you know, enter the, the question or enter into the into the, the whole decision making process. And to be honest, I had no clue about how to sell a watch. I knew how to make watch parts i knew uh, had learned how to make watches and um but i didn't know anything about distribution i didn't have any contacts i didn't you know that the the old distribution network formex uh, had built up and that was kind of blossoming in 2005 that was already more than 10 years ago by the time i stepped right. in had kind of a lot of them weren't around anymore the retailers uh, weren't actually selling anything anymore um or not paying, you know, when you shipped stuff. So um, I basically took a year uh, to analyze the whole brand um, and then also analyze possible distribution channels, uh, knocking at a lot of doors. But since I didn't have any contacts or any knowledge about how these things work, I came up with, not the idea, but I, I came up with the decision of uh, going direct to consumer, uh, which brought a couple of advantages, but... Yeah, boy, did we wake up uh, about how hard it is to sell a watch of a niche brand that not many people have heard of. So, yeah, it was a very steep learning curve from the beginning. And, you know, honestly, every day still is. And I think that's also what makes it so exciting. You know, I'm really excited about learning new things every day. And uh, this is what keeps it uh, keeps it spicy. I try to give people the example of imagining a retail store in the middle of space. Because a retail store in a city on a street is going to naturally have some footfall, people walking by, cars. Without doing anything special at all, there's going to be people seeing the place and knowing about it and a couple of people coming in. And if you're halfway decent, you'll develop some relationships. When you have a digital store on the internet, there are no roads to it unless you build them there are no streets that just naturally happen to go by. It's not at any intersection anywhere. And so you have to consistently create reasons and awareness uh, to your website. Um, and it is a challenge that I don't know that most people really understand now that you sort of understand it. Wh- what would you say to some people who are about to go into this and need to consistently build these roads to their, you know, their, their digital domain and space? 
Yeah, that's that's a tough one. It also depends on what year are we talking about. You know, are we talking about 2012, 13, 14? Now when, we're talking when, about now. <laughs> yeah, what do so, we do now? <laughs> right now, uh, things are a bit, bit yeah. more complicated and expensive. You know, when you're talking about 2013, <laughs> 14, Facebook ads were basically thrown at you. Um, uh, it was way easier to track things and, and to measure performance than it is nowadays. So, you know, nowadays you kind of have to throw a wide net uh, to capture some brand awareness and then funnel that down uh, to, to, uh, to in the end, uh, conversions and, and purchases. So I'm by no means an expert on that, but I've, I've learned a fair, my fair share over the <laughs> last couple of years. But uh, the most important thing that I've learned is that there is no recipe for it, for that. Um, and there's also no way of exactly measuring everything. Um, and yeah, that's, that's basically my, my advice is to, um, try to find your place in the, in the market with your brands and, and try to create something that uh, not everyone else is doing because that's, that's not going to work. And obviously creating awareness in, in the press and in, in outlets, uh, yeah, like a blog to watch and where, where outlets that actually attract, uh, millions of readers, uh, a month. So yeah, that's, that's definitely something you should do, but there is no recipe for online marketing, um, especially in luxury items that basically nobody really needs. It's not like we're, you know, selling food or a toothbrush or, or shower heads that in the end, everybody uses every day. Um, but we're selling something at a premium um, that you know you your customer needs uh, some disposable income to be able to afford. So it's all about selling emotions also, and and you know making customer want to be part of of the journey of the brand. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. I also think that a company like Formex is in a very advantageous position with the ability to, to make decisions very, very quickly. The, the luxury watch space is dominated, at least financially, by large you know, uh, conglomerate companies, groups that own multiple brands. Some of them are publicly traded. And they <laughs> do not pivot very quickly. Yeah. Um, but to come out with products that are interesting – to do last-minute marketing campaigns, uh, to go to an event that you need to be at uh, requires a lot of rapid decision-making. And as you said, you can't really, don't really have metrics, you can't prove in advance. Do you notice that as a smaller company, you have an enormous amount of advantages in today's market compared to the oftentimes richer and, and better distributed companies? 
Yeah, in terms of product uh, developments and and quick decisions, uh, definitely. So that's that's we're very quick to pivot or adapt or you know like uh, bringing out a make two of a of a new model within you know less than a year if we see that something needs improving. Um, so yeah, definitely in that sense we have an advantage, but the disadvantage is definitely what you mentioned, you know, we're not sitting at an intersection, we're not I vi- I visited um I spent a weekend in Interlaken uh 2 weeks ago. Uh, yeah. We did some hiking and mountain biking and in the evening we went to stroll through Interlaken and the amount of watch brands uh I saw that I had never heard of that are clearly only manufactured for Interlaken because it really? gets so much tourist foot traffic <laughs> uh, was was kind of a, an eye-opener for me. So, well, in terms of foot traffic, so people go there. There's a, a lot of um, a lot of Chinese tourists, a lot of um, a lot of Middle Eastern tourists. I, that's what I saw when I went there. And okay. clearly people, when they're shopping, you see that they're they're ready they they brought the cash uh, because they want to bring something home and preferably it's going to be a watch i've i've seen so many people walking around with with uh, the the wall clocks the the cuckoo's watches it's like <laughs> okay you don't see one of them in any home in switzerland but it's perceived as something so swiss uh, that people want to go home with one it's made of wood uh, and and it has a scene uh, one of them i saw oh it has a scene with heidi uh, in front of the little, oh my uh, the little house, <laughs> and and I saw some tourists and the kids. Oh, that's Heidi. That's Heidi. Bam, sold. <laughs> so, and and you never, you know, you're right. You never see that in Swiss places. They do yeah. no kuka clocks. And you never. would think that I know watch brands around, but I've seen so many of them that I've never heard of and have exclusively seen in Interlaken, and. Um, actually, I talked to somebody who is uh, managing one of the bigger stores there, and I'm not going to mention any brands, but he said he's selling 10, 10 watches a day for a specific brand that has an average price of 20K. And that must be one of the best-selling stores in the world for them. So, you know, it's it's crazy what this foot traffic combined with uh, a tourist attraction place like Interlaken, which is a gorgeous place um what kind of sales power that that actually brings together it, it was a real eye opener for me and uh you know m- might get uh, involved or might might have an influence on future decisions for me it's probable right that if you grow like that you start to have stores that type of overhead that's why the the prices start to go up to those levels they do cuz right now you know you spend on average about 1500 bucks um, and you get you get a lot of product with the Formex. I mean, there's just no way around it. I mean, the, the price levels even more than that, some less than that. I mean, there's a lot of watch for the money. But I guess it's true that once you start to have that larger brand footprint, you just necessarily have to charge more for your product, right? Yeah, that's completely true. Uh, and also, if you want to go more and more. Uh, of the retail route so getting more retail partners will necessarily uh, people right now our, our retailers are real enthusiast retailers and and they really want to you know also go the extra mile with us to to be able to sell our watches um, but if you want to cover a, a broader or cast a, a wider net in terms of retail uh, more margin is going to be your friend, which uh, will translate in into higher prices. So we're not at that stage uh, right now yet, but um, 
our brand is is establishing, uh, especially I would say established in the enthusiast community right now. Uh, so a lot of, the word is kind of out that it's it's a secret tip. You get a lot of watch for your money. Um, you get a excellent customer service and and attention to to detail. And this, you know, if you want to cast a wider net, as I mentioned, and and get more. Uh, of the customers that are less and less uh, enthusiasts compared to the customers we have now. Uh, you also need to invest more into brand image, into marketing. You need to attach more more non-watchmaking emo- <clears throat> non-watchmaking emotion to the brand, which will eventually cost more money and and the cost of sales goes up with that and and eventually the price will also go up with that. I want to change topics is something related, and that is selling direct as well as selling the retailers. And I want to explain why this is an interesting dilemma, because when you sell direct, (laughs) you ostensibly get to keep more of the margin, which means you can have a lower retail price because you don't have to double it in order to share margin with the retailer. When you sell with a retailer, uh, yes, you uh, distribute the work to someone else, but you necessarily have to charge more for it because they expect a very healthy uh, percentage of the sale as as their fee, as how they make money. So I guess the question is, just from your perspective, how does a company have a price which allows them to sell direct and be competitive, but also have relationships with retailers? Um, what is the right way of doing that? That's a good question. I, I'd like an answer to as well. <laughs> no. um, okay, so you're also doing- trying to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, we're figuring everything out as we go. As as I mentioned, I'm a product guy, so I've become a, a sales guy over the past years because somebody has to sell our watches. Um, and uh, thankfully, I have uh, uh, very good help from from my friend Marcus, who is our marketing director, who you've met, Ariel, who you jumped, right? jumped, jumped out of an airplane with. <laughs> we all did. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm thankfully not alone in this, but... Yeah, the, the secret there is to actually find retail partners who will, obviously everybody has to make a living. Uh, so we're not that far off from, from, you know, Keystone wholesale prices right now, but we're still, a, still a bit off. And, uh, you just have to find passionate retail partners that are, that understand the co- concept and want in on it also. So it's not impossible. And, um, we're getting more and more requests from all over the world. We just opened a retail partner in Singapore. We're talking to uh, to many other uh, regions right now. So it's possible to do. Obviously, my first sentence when somebody reaches out is always that, hey, thank you so much uh, for considering us and for wanting to work with us. Uh, and my, my second sentence will already touch on the margin and say, hey, can you work with that? Are you okay with that? Because I don't want to waste anybody's time. Okay, so that's a very interesting point. We don't have to talk specific numbers, but what you're saying is that it's probably the fact that in the new way of doing things where there is direct-to-consumer sales, in order to keep up with the game, retailers just have to expect a lower margin because a lot of watches sold, retailers would expect without any discounting, about a 50% margin, which is quite a lot, made sense, fancy stores, nice staff, expensive products, not Champagne. a lot of sales each day, <laughs> champagne, uh, uh, birthday cards. <clears throat> but um, maybe that that isn't the only way of doing these. Maybe a lower margin in exchange with other types of, uh, of you know concessions and conveniences, maybe that's the way forward, right? Yeah, you know, the, the guys were 
working with us are, are not sleeping and, and a lot of them are also born online uh, and then venturing out to starting to have a retail surface uh, and a store. Uh, but they started online, so they needed to find brands that were okay uh, with working with kind of no-name, uh, at the time no-name um, uh, retailers, online retailers. And they offered, they tried to offer something new to their customers as well. So a great service, very very personalized, and watches that you don't necessarily find anywhere else. So, you know, in the um, enthusiast community, uh, there's a lot of brands that you don't find in retail or in classic retail. And a lot of brands went the direct-to-consumer route. And these are the brands that you typically find at one of these retailers. Um, so they're hustling to offer something new to the enthusiast community and then the watch collectors. And this is how you know the whole new margin game is is factored in. One of the interesting things that you did a couple of years ago now, but it was a big deal, was change the logo. And this is not unprecedented. This happens all the time, but it was a big deal. And you know, you never please everybody, but I want to hear a little bit about the process that you went through. First of all, deciding we need to change it. How did you make a decision? And then what was the experience like in the days and weeks after doing it? And now, after you've done it all, how do you feel about the whole process? We're very happy with it, um, how it turned out, and with the feedback we got right away afterwards. So when we started, we knew that the, the logo needed some updating, but we still had some some watches to sell that we took over with the company, so some, some of the pilot watches. Uh, so we couldn't change the logo straight away, also because it was a, you know, it's a kind of a big investment to just change the logo and the... the the branding on everything, you know, from goes down to the watch boxes to to you know exhibition equipment and everything. So we didn't want to change it right away. Uh, we couldn't change it right away, actually. But then you know you see a lot of nice online reviews, uh, YouTube reviews of our watches, and uh, unmistakably underneath in the in the comment section, you you see all this hate for the, for the logo. So that gets you thinking, but. I wasn't a big fan of the logo. Obviously, you, you don't say that at the time uh, to customers, but also wasn't a big fan. So we knew from the very, very beginning that that will have to come at some point. And we did it. The first model that had the new logo was the, the Essence 39, which also became one of our best sellers. Um, and the feedback was great because uh, some people were literally held back by the logo design uh, before they really loved the watch design, uh, but they just can't, couldn't get over the logo. So uh, <laughs> we, we were able to capture those guys right away. So that, I, yeah, look, that all, all defense, over a great experience. In defense of the old logo, <laughs> it worked for the brand as it was when it was founded with those products. Absolutely. Um, there's nothing wrong with that logo, but <clears throat> it had to get a touch up for, you know, to be more. But you changed uh, the direction adapted. of the brand. It, it went in a different direction. When you change the direction of the brand, I think this is very important for other people who purchase brands. What were those things where you say, you know what, it's still going to be called Formex, but these other things are going to maintain. Like there's some type of DNA that you're trying to maintain. What, what did you intentionally want to carry over from the Formex that you purchased? We thought the, the case suspension system was a really cool uh, trait of, of yeah. the brand. Um, then we also 
don't neglect to carry on the kind of high octane feeling that the brand had before. But we also knew that, as you mentioned before, it was very niche. And without having those those stores where somebody would walk in and f- fall in love with, with one of these chunky pieces, uh, we there wasn't a chance of selling them, really. Uh, or the, the effort uh, and the learning curve would have been much worse for us. So we kind of needed to change the designs into something more potable, more adapted to the times. Uh, which means smaller, uh, slimmer, more wearable, and and something that is, uh, you know, adapted more to a wider audience. So we wanted to carry carry on the the DNA. Um, still today, you find design elements that we carried over and translated a, a bit. But the main goal from the get go, from our first watch that we designed, which was the Element Chronograph which was still at 46 millimeters, uh, pretty chunky and pretty thick. And uh, from from that moment on, we kind of wanted to refine the design, but carry on uh, those those elements. And the goal was really always to create a unique design DNA. So my goal from, from the beginning was that in X amount of years time, somebody would look at a Formex on a wrist from far away without seeing the logo and saying, hey, that, that looks like a Formex. And um, yeah, I had that mentioned to, to me over the you know past two years a couple of times and that really, really uh, <laughs> puts a smile on my face when that happens because it means that we sort of succeeded in, in that mission. It's just a very interesting thing uh, to talk about for me because obviously you have to go through this mental process and it can get people can get very stuck on it. You know, I, I don't know what to carry over, or I have to spend, the, you know, have to have a spirit quest to understand what this brand is all about. Um, and trying to stay, we'll call it cohesive. People sometimes use the word consistent. I think the real word is cohesive with each new product, and the brand feels like it's this this entire item, not this amorphous blob that keeps going in all these different ways. That's that's a difficult difficult thing to do. How do you sift through all the feedback? Because I think the hardest thing, uh, being in a, in a role like yours where you have this creative authority, is every direction someone's telling you, Raphael, you got to do this, or don't do this, or you got to do this one right now in this color in this way. And like, you, of course, you can't do it all. Sometimes the things are <laughs> redundant. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you how do you personally sort through all of that noise? So when. Starting from a clean slate with a new model, we do uh, consider, uh, heavily consider actually the customer feedback. So we have our, our customer service team uh, here in Beale has a, has a Google Sheet uh, with, a, with a section for each model. And we literally write down every single piece of customer feedback or suggestion. Uh, we write down every single piece, and if something gets repeated, it just gets a one, two, three, four, five times um, behind that feedback. And you know, in the end, you get a pretty clear picture of what people or most people want, or which you know which customer suggestion gets the more most votes. Uh, and that definitely flows into the into the development process, but also. Um, a lot of it, I don't know if I can put a percentage number on that, but a, a lot of it is just also personal preferences, what I think looks cool, 
And this is one of the freedoms we have as a small brand is we, we can make watches that we think are cool. <laughs> we don't necessarily only have to, you know, see what, you know, what's going to sell better or not. Obviously, we're, we're in it to sell watches. So we also have some commercial considerations when we design something. But uh, a lot of it is just our design, our free hand <laughs> design that goes into it. So when you when you say your your freehand free design, I mean there is obviously more of a process than that, and you have tons and tons of designs. What are some of the things that a watch must do before you sort of greenlight it for production? Because you you're 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 conservative at this point. You're coming up with sort of tried and true themes. Yes, you're having your own take on it. You want to innovate, but you're definitely not an art watch brand. You may never be. But talk a little bit about some of those like check marks that every product has to have before Raphael says, okay, we're going to make it. I don't really have a list for that. Uh, it just, you know, a lot of the times when, we, when we're working on a new model, uh, we're going off of mood boards that we all create, uh, something, some, some, you know, commercial considerations, like what kind of platform do we want? want it, do we want it to be a field watch? pilot watch, a dive watch, what kind of watch are we making next? So we start with that. And then we say, we start really designing on a clean slate. And, but I'm starting with some pointers that, you know, the whole team already knows we don't want to make, we want to keep our watches slim, uh, which in my opinion makes them look cooler, uh, wear more, you know, wear with more comfort and, um, also kind of look more elegant. And so we want to create tool watches also, but they need to have um, elegant pointers on them. So, you know, uh, the polished bevels on, on the reef. So the reef, if you look at it from a bit further away, it looks like a like a tool watch, like a dive watch, you know, big indices. But if you really zoom in at every level, you're going to find the, the same design and finishing philosophy. So you, you see the same finishing theme on the case, on the bracelet, on the clasp, you can zoom in onto the date window, which has the same kind of finishing and, and, and design philosophy. Uh, you can zoom in even further into the hands and the indices, and you're going to find, you know, the, the brushed surfaces and the, the polished um, bevels done in a certain way. Uh, because I think it's it's really important for a coherence uh, from from the biggest part to the smallest part. So it's it's not necessarily a checklist that I have with things uh, that I want done on a on a new design, but it's the overall feel uh, when the design is ready. And then we play around a lot. You know, we three uh, D print a lot of the the first iterations. Uh, we wear the the prints for a little bit, and yeah, it's a lot of playing around and. You know, we didn't mention the, the fact that we have our own dial manufacturing um, yet, but that's part of, of Dexel as well. It sits in another location in, in the Jura Mountains, but and my, my uncle is actually heading it up. So we have a lot of uh, hands-on designing that we can do there. So we can talk about a design, then I can drive up there, uh, you know, mix colors myself and, and see what can be done. Uh, or it's just, can this be done is, is usually either a phone call or a 45-minute drive away uh, for me. So this gives us a, a lot of flexibility. And, you know, most watches, even Formex, before before we relaunched the brands, uh, didn't make dials in Switzerland. This, in this price class, you will rarely find a, a dial that is made in Switzerland. 
it's the norm to not do do that because you're just not going to fit into the pricing. And since we're doing direct, our, our dials typically cost three times as much to make as a dial uh, typical for our price category. So um, one of the freedoms of selling direct to consumer is not having to turn around every penny in, in product um, cost. Uh, before making a decision, so we can, you know, even the interchangeable bezel system it costs way more than than a regular bezel, and yeah. most people don't actually think about that. How much tinkering and and optimizing? Uh, still nowadays, two years after we launched the inter interchangeable bezel uh, with the Reef version two, uh, we're still tinkering to improve that and make it even better. So um, yeah, as uh, yesterday, I spent my afternoon in the mechanics workshop on the lathe turning new new versions of the bezel to, to see how we can improve it. Now, are you doing that because you just sort of want to understand the process? Or as the CEO, do sometimes you actually need to step in and be like, hey, we have some deadlines, let's let's move this stuff along, and you actually help? It's not necessarily about deadlines. It's about the ongoing process of optimizing. So I have to understand how everything is made in order to be able to improve it. Because if, if I don't know how it's made or haven't made it myself uh, personally, how would I be able to improve it? And I don't want to be relying on other people to to do technical improvements because then it means I don't understand it and I'm going to be kind of dependent on, on other people all the time. And the best new innovation comes from understanding all of that stuff. So you kind of have to nerd it out sometimes, uh, which I do uh, with, a lot of, uh, with a lot of pleasure. I, I want to sort of just expand upon that. You know, someone in a creative role can have an endless amount of ideas, but a asking the question, can I actually execute it? Can this dial be made? Can this case be made? Um, you have to have real answers to those questions before you decide to move forward. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. You are actively trying to answer the questions of how does this all work and can it be done so that you can make a business decision as to whether or not to actually invest in, in products around it, right? Yes. And the, the sooner you get these answers without having to send a chain of emails around the world, uh, the the more efficient and also the, the better your product is going to be uh, quicker. So, you know, from the experience we've gathered over the past couple of years developing different models, we already know how to avoid some pitfalls, some, you know, alignment issues uh, that, you know, customers take for granted because in the end on the product, something is not aligned. They're going to be like, what? I spent two grand on this and they can't even align it. But in the end, it comes down to tolerances in production of, you know, maybe eight eight uh, components and the the tolerances on, on case components for instance are you know three hundredths uh, of a millimeter and um, and if you add those up uh, times eight and you're you're not locking out on all of the components so they're all on minimum minimum tolerance uh, that is going to be uh, two tenths of a millimeter which is going to be very much visible in the end product as a misalignment so you know what goes into actually aligning something that anybody would take for granted in the markets is uh, much more work than than one would think. And and knowing knowing these things as you go into designing <laughs> a new model can save you a lot of time and headaches. I think this is what you want the CEO of a watch company to be thinking about, right? Like not not the next event that you're going to sort of like sponsor, but like the tolerances and the alignment and all these things for the product. I mean, that is really a good sign. I guess the last question we have time for, 
uh, relates to something that I think that you've also done wise, and that is really limit the number of, of movements that you use. Um, you have the GMT version of the reef uh, as you know the, the watch with the additional complication, but for the most part, the watches are time only or time with date. You have a lot of variety in the collection, sizes, cases, colors, materials, but you've sort of realized that most people just sort of want the time and the date. Talk a little bit about that strategy where um, you, you've sort of you know, focused on that area of simplicity as a way of streamlining things. This stems from the business side of things. So obviously I'd like to have much more different complications and, and everything, but in the end, uh, the movement is the most expensive part of the watch, uh, usually, especially ours because we use them we we get them fully decorated and chronometer certified that uh, you know if you take a sw200 from the standard version of it to the version we're getting it's uh more than double the price or just about yeah. double the price yeah um so that's a lot of inventory cost so you kind of have to streamline streamline that in 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 a business in in terms of uh, the business side of things but the creative side of things obviously wants to more variation customers also ask for but actually the movements nobody really asks for more variation in the movements aside from requests for chronographs um that might or might not come <laughs> but uh, yeah so this is really you know business being business smart about your inventory because uh, you can't have you know 2 million worth of inventory uh, with with uh, that that matches your revenue or whatever it is, so you have to be kind of uh, smart about that, and and you know it also requires creativity creativity to make more of of it with with less variation in movements. So yeah. I just want to add a little bit of context here, which I think is interesting historically, and this has not been the fact for I don't know twenty five years now, but in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, a lot of smaller brands would try to distinguish themselves by having like a bunch of versions of the same watch with different complications. So they would choose like this platform and they would just shove as many movements in there as possible as though that would help them sell more units. And maybe at a time it did. And I think of um, Alan Silberstein is a perfect example. <laughs> like so many freaking complications that this guy went through. Just like, you know, and, and it was because apparently the, the market wanted it. There's a small brand called Zemex that I like. I don't know, they're maybe still around, I don't know. And they had, again, just this enormous variety of complications with some, some of the same designs. Even Mont Blanc watches uh, did a lot of that type of stuff. So you had this um, particular business philosophy then, which was like, the market wants complications. Give them more complications today. <laughs> like you said, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know they're cool, but they're expensive. And do people really want them? And honestly, I, most people don't. Even people that own chronographs, they look cool. They're fun to play with. But usage, uh, reliance on the chronograph complication is uh, de minimis. Yeah, it's yeah, it's fun. Uh, it's good that you mentioned that, actually, because in Formex, we had the same case. I mean, before I started, uh, they also kind of went with that philosophy. Um, before we stepped in, we had the same case size for the chronograph, seventy, like a Valju movement, 7750, 70, uh, and the same case for uh, SW200 movement, which kind of gave a huge space between the glass and the dial, um, <laughs> which I always think doesn't look so cool. But having uh, or limiting the, the calibers that we use also gives us the power 
or you know, for me, it's a requirement. We want to design the watch around the movement for everything to fit very snug, and to create a, a slim watch, to create something that really looks like it's built around the movement. And you can't do that if you need to, you know, stuff in uh, four different calibers into into one case that is identical. Raphael, we're out of time. Um, where can people find you and more about Formex on the internet? So you can find us on formexwatch.com, uh, on Instagram, also formexwatch. Please give us a, a follow. And um, we have a newsletter that when you're part of the, or when you're, uh, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you actually get a pre-release uh, before even the press reports about new releases and you have 24 hours uh, to order before the watch even gets released um, so that's that's a little advantage of being part of our our newsletter and for the folks uh, that use Facebook out there we have the Formex watch club where our uh, owners uh, and and friends post pictures with their with their newest Formex and then where we exchange uh, between the brand and the customers Lots of ways of engaging with the brand. Thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Rafael Granito of Formax. Rafael, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.